hey, just before we start the podcast today, I just wanted to let you know about something happening with Alpha. A couple months ago, we were running Alpha at our home church, and uh, then the pandemic happened, and we were in the middle of the course, and so we had to pause it. And a few weeks went by, and then we heard stories from around the world of people moving their Alpha online. And so we thought we'd give it a try. And so we relaunched our Alpha. We invited back the people who were coming, and we had such an incredible experience doing Alpha online that we did another one over the summer, and we're just getting ready to launch our third Alpha online this October. And so if you want to find out more about what it could look like to do Alpha online, the team at Alpha Canada has put a ton of training together. You can find out more at alphacanada.org. For all of you as pastors and Christian leaders, God didn't call you uh, because he needed some work done. You know, he called you to be with him. He called you, remember in Mark's gospel, it says Jesus called the disciples so that they might be with him. Before he sent them out, he called them near. And man, we've got to recover that. Well, hey, everyone, it's Jason here, and I want to welcome you to another episode of the show. Today, we have the privilege of hearing from someone who I've wanted to interview and get to know for a long time, Dr. Glenn Packiam. Glenn lives in Colorado Springs, Colorado. He wears a couple different hats. He's the associate senior pastor for New Life Church, and he's the lead pastor for their New Life downtown location, which is one of seven New Life congregations. Glenn's written a variety of different books, one called Blessed, Broken, Given, another Discover the Mystery of Faith, and his most recent book, which we get to chat quite a bit about, called Worship and the World to Come. And let me just say this off the top. If you're a church leader and you're trying to work through your own theology and philosophy of worship or how you will define that in your church. I really believe his newest book, Worship in the World to Come, will help you with that. For me and my team, Glenn has helped give language to our convictions around worship. Glenn has done some great thinking on how we, as the people of God, experience hope through worship and how our eschatology can shape and inform our worship experience in the church today. And one of my favorite things about Glenn is his ability to draw from the best parts of different streams and expressions within the church. And it comes out so much in his book and our interview today. I just love chatting with him and I hope you enjoy the conversation. Here's Dr. Glenn Packiam. Well, hey, Glenn, it is such a pleasure to be with you. Thanks for making time to hang out today. Thank you, Jason. Pleasure to be on with you. Hey, I'm just getting to know you, but I'd love for everyone listening just to get a window into your life, into your family, your work, even some of your passions. Just help us get a picture of your world these days. Well, I live in Colorado Springs, have lived here for 20 years, I worked at the same church, New Life Church. And it uh, turns out if you hang out at a church long enough, they keep uh, inventing new roles for you. So I am uh, one of two associate senior pastors, and I oversee all of our off-site congregations, as well as leading one of the congregations, which is New Life Downtown. My wife, Holly, and I have been married 19 years. We met in college. Um, we have four kids, Sophia, Nora, Jonas, and Jane, 15, 13, 10 and a half, and 8. So it's great. I mean, it's lots of fun. Um, we, we were run, shuttling kids around basically in the evenings. We double as uh, Uber drivers for free, basically <laughs> driving our kids and their friends. No tips. Yeah, no tips. No, yeah, no payment. But uh, yeah, and that, that's a little snapshot. And I'm a big sports fan. So there's a, there's a lot. I'm glad that sports are back and cheering on our local Denver teams. Oh, it's so fun. And um 
I'd love to know, d- describe your role, because I know you wear a few hats at New Life. Yeah. And New Life's a church that probably a lot of people are familiar with. Um, but yeah, what's, describe your role there, because I know you're wearing a few different hats. Yeah. So uh, as associate senior pastor, I, the, the couple things that I do, one is I I help kind of coach and, and, and lead the off-site congregation pastors. So we're a church of seven different congregations in three different languages at four different locations. So the the Mandarin language congregation, they do a great job. They're running on their own. Um, but I oversee the Spanish language congregation. And then we have one at kind of the foothills of the mountains called Manitou Springs, New Life Manitou. Uh, and then we have New Life East, which is on the east end of town. We have New Life Downtown, which I actually also serve as the, the lead pastor for. Uh, and then we have New Life Friday Night. I don't oversee that, but that's one of our other congregations. And New Life North is kind of our original uh, main campus, if you will. Uh, and then and then I'm also kind of uh, tasked with curating a, a curriculum um, for training and development for all of our pastors and ministry directors. So two or three times a year, I'll put together an eight-week course. A lot of times we're working through a different... Uh, a different um, existing, you know, a, a training thing. But our our, our goal, you know, as we're, we've discovered, uh, culture is the kind of thing organizationally where you have to seed the kind of culture that you want. Yeah. It's not just weeding, you know, pulling out the weeds, but it's also seeding, uh, you know, shaping the thing that you want. And so a couple of years ago, I, we began this initiative where I would put together kind of a curriculum for it. And so it would cover things like leadership practices. What do we want? What do we consider the best practices of leadership here at New Life? Uh, sometimes they're theological. We're about to start an eight-week uh, thing through N.T. Wright and Michael Bird's um, The New Testament You Never Knew, which is like a shortened version of their New Testament in its world thing. Uh, we've done some training on cultural conversations, you know, about uh, about controversial issues and things like that. Um, and then, so that that's the main, th- those are the two main things. I also oversee um, Dr. Pete Sanchez, whom you know, uh, he, he is the executive pastor over the worship ministry. He's a brilliant 70-something sage. Uh, who, who shepherds our team of worship pastors. And I basically come alongside him and, and figure out how to, how to resource and encourage that team. So those are the areas that I get to dip in and out of. That's, it's fun. Oh, it's so interesting. I kind of want to talk about each one. Whenever I hear people describe like a curriculum they're doing within their church, the passion for me is leadership development, um, particularly pastoral leadership development. Um, one of the things I think often about is, we are, and people listening to the podcast are tired of me saying this, but I'll keep saying it. Uh, we are approaching a big leadership crisis in the church as baby boomers approach retirement. And if COVID's done anything, it's expedited that retirement journey. And uh, there's going to be a big gap and there's not a lot of extras in the workforce, uh, particularly in pastoral ministry. And then the the precarious baton pass between a boomer and a millennial is, yeah, it's, it's a real thing. And so I think about what are we doing and then also we see uh, people leaving the ministry quite early. They have like a couple bad years in youth ministry. Maybe they're in our bad leadership and they're out. And it's like, so we have a real gap. At least we're seeing this in the Canadian church. And so you describing um, this intentional investment into leaders and staff is just so interesting to me. Have you guys ever published or shared some of that journey that you take them on? Uh, no, but I'm happy to share it. I mean, it's again, it's all existing curriculum. So one of the things we do as one of the three eight-week things in a year is we go through Pete Scazzaro's Emotionally Healthy um, Discipleship Materials. So one year we'll do Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. So it's to help them yeah. in their own kind of deep life with God, face their shadow. You know, that's the Scazzaro stuff, dig deep in the iceberg. 
which leaders, you know, one of the reasons we burn out is because we don't ever slow down long enough to take a deep, hard look at, at what's going on beneath the surface. So that course is a teaser, but it's an introduction to some of the practices that can help. We also do emotionally healthy relationships, which helps our people just in terms of how to address issues early on. I mean, sometimes people say the Lord is moving them on, but really it's because they, there's a relational rift that they, wow. don't, that they don't know how to reconcile. So there's that. And then, and then we've used Preston Sprinkle's uh, Grace and Truth stuff on gender and sexuality questions. And again, I, I found that the key is not necessarily to find a material that you agree 100% with, but as you well know from Alpha, getting the conversation going, is, is, is that's the victory right there. Yeah. Yeah, putting something as a through line that you can gather around. I appreciate you sharing that. We'll we'll link to all the things you described in the show notes so people can access that. And um, and then you're also doing teaching, like you're an academic as well. And so can you describe a bit of your academic journey that's gone alongside? You've been at New Life, you said, for 20 years, but it seems like there's also been an academic journey that ran alongside that. Can you give us a window into that? About 10 years ago or so, I had this hunger to re-engage in a formal kind of learning environment. And, you know, there was this catalytic event for our church that happened in late 2006, where the founding senior pastor, you know, was a pretty public moral failure. And I mean, that was that was a defining moment for a lot of us that were young 20-somethings on staff. We, we were, you know, we were on, on, on lots of different ministry events with Ted and, and the way the organization was run was, um, there was an org chart, but we didn't really follow it. So even as young guys, we were in meetings that we probably shouldn't have been in, but we were at the, the, the good upside is we were at the table a lot. But the downside is obviously when the fall uh, happened, it, it was a pretty shaking thing. And it, it was catalytic in a number of ways because it helped us realize that if we're going to last in ministry, uh, we need several things. We need, you know, we need a, a good, robust, truth-telling community, uh, but we also needed uh, deeper roots. And, and, and for me, part of that was this awakening to return to this hunger for theology. My undergrad had been in theological historical studies. So I kind of loved that. But then I did a master's in business management, and then I sort of was doing all this worship leading and traveling with the band. And so I'd set aside academic stuff. But in 2010, 2011, I thought, it's time. And so began to do some classes at Fuller Seminary, uh, which had a campus here in town. And that awakened something in me. And then that led to me wanting to pursue a doctorate. And I discovered... Uh, a program at Durham University in the UK where you could go for a week of residency a year, sometimes a couple couple times a year, and do a lot of your supervision over Skype and all that. So I, I ended up researching worship and hope or worship and eschatology and finished that in 2018. And uh, and then, you know, I, I, I as I'm a visiting fellow or whatever at uh, St. John's College where I was, the program was housed at Durham. So I, I've gone over to teach an MA program, and then I'll do some stuff for Denver Seminary, which is not far. So there's, I dabble. I wouldn't say I'm an academic, but I dabble. <laughs> and then your most recent book is um, like a, an accessible version of your dissertation, right? Uh, Worship yeah. and the World to Come. Uh, I just so enjoyed researching for this and getting into the structure of the form and the things that you do, like you give this kind of overview of practical theology, you you share some research, you interviewed a thousand churches. It's so fascinating. And then really unpack a theology of hope and and how what we do. And even the work on the Holy Spirit at the end, like I just really think it's a compelling piece. Um, but t- just talk, give us a little, talk, tell us a little bit about that book. And because obviously that was the fruit of a lot of work that you did and appreciate you making it accessible to a wider audience. 
Yeah, I mean, anytime trying to you're trying to make something like this accessible, you're going to make some errors. And I, one Amazon reviewer was very disappointed in the lack of accessibility of it. But the, the, the main idea of the research was to say, okay, we, we talk about how worship is formative and how it forms us, but I wanted to, to inquire, how formative is it exactly? Like, if we have bad songs, are we automatically doomed? You know, so to inquire of that, I there's chose a few, one. There's a few bloggers that I, I see yes. show up on YouTube. YouTube every now and then who really believe that we are. People are convinced. They'll pick a line here and there and say, this is the end of the church, you know, it's game over. So I wanted to inquire if that was really true. And and so I, I, I designed it to function along the inquiry of Christian hope. The nutshell is I interviewed a thousand worship leaders uh, with surveys and, and there's 25 different questions. There's a lot of questions about which, you know, what brings you hope. But one of the main questions was, what's a song that brings you hope? What's a song that brings your church hope? And I compiled the answers to those two questions and, and then analyzed the top five or ten songs of, of that, that that were mentioned the most. And the, the long and short of it is the songs that were said to be songs of hope were kind of lacking. They didn't have the robust Christian theology of hope. They didn't talk about the world to come or bodily resurrection. There was a little bit of heaven. There was quite a bit of focus on the present tense, actually, and quite a bit of like, you know, what God is doing in the here and now. But then you see, and this is where the, the, the methodology for some of the bloggers you're referring to is not helpful, is you can't just focus on on lyrics. And even from a secular sociology standpoint, the text of a ritual is not the same thing as the performance of the ritual. Something else happens when you actually get into it. Now, to say it in Christian terms, there's an X factor when Christians get together and sing the songs. More is going on than just the lyrics. And so I did a deep dive with two churches, one in Dallas, one in Denver, both that would be in comparable suburbs. And what I discovered with my focus groups is people experience hope every time they come into worship. They experience it in powerful ways. They experience the kind of hope that's resilient even. Like they were facing medical challenges, marriage challenges, family difficulties. But they'd go back during the week and put on the music again, start praying in the spirit again. And all of a sudden their hope would return so the ending of the book is quite important because it's this whole uh, proposal about a theology of the Spirit, uh, Jason, and, and, and that is that the, the Spirit is God's eschatological presence. The Spirit is how we foretaste the future. Um, so you don't have to sing about the future to experience the hope of the future. You just have to welcome the Holy Spirit. And, and then secondly, the, the Spirit is God's powerful and empowering presence with us. So, again, a key element of hope, even from a cognitive psychology standpoint, is the sense of agency, that we know that we can do this. Well, what happens when a Christian gets in worship? They all of a sudden realize, you know what, God, you are worthy. You can do this. You have the power. And even by the power of the Spirit, we can persevere. We can endure. We can, you know. So, the, the long and short of it is God meets us in surprising ways with his presence. And so we experience hope even when we're not singing perfectly about it. Hmm. And I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it, but the argument would be what a bonus also if we could then <laughs> sing into the story of great hope, this broad story that we're being invited to through the story of scripture and the story of God, that this, this, this anticipation of a great hope. You're exactly right. I mean, God's kindness should not be an excuse for our sloppiness. And so there, there is a charge at the end of the book for songwriters, for worship leaders, for pastors, 
uh, to preach in a way that, like you said so beautifully, you know, that, that tells the, the greater story, the bigger story, invites people into that. I just can't help but think about the moment we're in right now. And, um, and we've had, as the human race, more profound moments of despair, for sure. But in, in this generation, this time, this is a really profound moment of unrest, of uncertainty, um, because of COVID, but also other political, social dynamics going on. And I just would love to hear you just reflect as a pastor, speaking to pastors, on our role to be brokers of hope mm-hmm. and to, and how do then our gatherings, whether in person or online, um, best give people a shot at experiencing and leaving with a, an anchored hope. That's su- you're right, Jason. It is such an important question. And, and, and pastors, we ourselves are tired, you know, where do we find uh, this hope? And, and it has to be anchored in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We have to be able to say that the worst day in human history has already happened. There, there could be no worse day in human history than the day that the Son of God was crucified. Uh, and this is why, the, you know, the gospel writers use end-of-the-world type language to describe the crucifixion. The sky turns black and, you know, all of this stuff. And and to to know that if the worst day has already happened and God raised Jesus from the dead, that means our hope is unshakable. We we know what God will then do um, uh, in the end. And so, you, you know, th- there's an interesting thing here, though, because anytime we point to that future hope, people get nervous that it it, it mutes the voice of lament or mutes the cry of lament. It, it does not do that. Um, uh, in fact, we are free to lament because we know the song will not end in a minor key. You know, uh, you, you can give in to this middle movement of sadness, if you will, because we know there will be a resolve. There will be this triumph. And, and the other thing people get nervous about is if we kick everything toward the future, wouldn't that make us passive about the real work that must be done here and now? But, but I, I think what Christians have done historically is the clearer our picture is of what the kingdom in its fullness looks like, then the better we are at anticipating the kingdom in the present tense, uh, the better we get at doing work that actually hints at, uh, as N.T. Wright says so often, is a signpost to that kingdom one day. Hmm. I feel like one of the challenges right now for pastors and teachers is, and songwriters, because I think we're teaching through all those things and, you know, any other ministry leaders, um, is speaking around themes of social justice and mercy and advocacy. Obviously, the conversation is profoundly about race, but it's not the only issue going on right now. Um, can you kind of walk us through, like, how do what what's the what is the Christian response that holds on to this future hope that motivates us to meaningful action in the present? And I've heard, as listening to your podcast, I heard it, it, that Christian hope critiques. Uh, like a modern view of progress. And I'm just wondering how that critique both allows us to fully engage meaningfully, but without misplacing or subverting our real gospel hope in Jesus. I I just need help with it, to be honest. I'm trying to pastor young adults who are so passionate about Jesus, but so passionate about what's going on in the world. And sometimes 
people in an effort to critique maybe some of the misplaced work around social justice end up sounding as if they don't care. And it's put this kind of false binary. And I'm just looking to you for a bit of help as you've kind of pastored your congregation through that. Yeah, Jason, it is disturbing how anemic um, the theological formation is for our people. And and when we don't have the real thing, we settle for cheap substitutes. You know, uh, a, a thirsty man will drink salty ocean water, even though that's going to kill you eventually. You know, so so I think one of the cheap substitutes is the notion of progress. That is, and Moltmann said this years ago. You know, post World War II, progress is a secularized version of hope. It's the notion that we can make a better world, and so we just keep trying. Um, but every once in a while, there are these mini catastrophes or real catastrophes that remind us, no, actually, we can't achieve human progress. Uh, the, the people that were talking about progress the most were in the early 1900s, and then ro- two world wars happened. And they said, okay, wait, wait a minute, maybe this isn't quite right. But the Christian version of that, and sadly, this emerged in America, maybe North America, maybe I don't know if Canada was the same, but probably it's worse in America, uh, in, in the U.S., uh, is the, the Christian version of it was not progress, but but escape, where we said, okay, we've given up on the myth of progress, but our faith is, quote unquote, an escape. God is going to get us out of here. So the real goal is to get souls saved so that one day we can go off to heaven. And both of those are, are, are inadequate. And if we would recapture the story that the Bible tells, we'll, we'll understand that the book of Revelation, Revelation 5, where the, you know, Jesus opens this, the scrolls, which, okay, let's just say the scroll represents the meaning of history. It's to some degree, it's something like that. And, and, and he says he has made, purchased from, with his blood people from every tribe and tongue. Why? That they might be a kingdom of priests. Well, that language shows up in the Old Testament. That's there in Exodus. And actually, that's there in Genesis. The whole idea of human beings made as image bearers is not just that you know, we have rational beings and a conscience and all that. That's part of it. But to truly, the, the, the meaning behind being an image bearer is we are meant to be royal priests. We're meant to be people who reflect God's reign and his rule, his wisdom, his order, his justice. We're supposed to cultivate shalom in the world. And we're supposed to reflect praise and worship upward. So that's the, the kingly role and the priestly role, if you will. And, and that was what was lost in the fall. So so what is restored by salvation? Is it that we just get sins erased and we get a ticket to heaven? That's what it's been reduced to for so many Christians. But actually, if we read our New Testaments carefully and closely, the language that Paul and Peter and James and John are using is that to be redeemed is to have our vocation restored, our original calling to be royal priests, to, to be people that reflect God's image. So where does that place us as people who are trying to do justice? Well, it, 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 we acknowledge that we can never fully put the world back together again. We cannot do that. Only Jesus can do that. However, Jesus by his spirit is at work in the world through the church. Jesus, he stands up in Luke 4 and, and reads from the school of Isaiah and says, I'm the anointed one. Many call this the Nazareth Manifesto, right? He's announcing his messianic mission. I've been anointed for this reason, to preach good news to the poor, to proclaim freedom to the oppressed. Well, Luke's 
part two in the book of Acts, the the church are called Christians, many anointed ones, if you will. Christ means anointed one, Christians, the little anointed ones. And whether that was tongue in cheek or whether that was real, we can we have embraced that to say, no, the same spirit that anointed Jesus so that he went about doing good, healing the sick, proclaiming good news to the poor, has anointed the body of Christ, the body of the Messiah, the church, to go and do likewise. So even if our work in the world is incomplete, even if our work in the world will not fully put things to right, even so we do it because this is what the Spirit has anointed us to do, and it's how we bear witness to what Christ will do in fullness when He comes again in glory. And it won't look like progress. There will be ups and downs, with two steps forward, one step back, whatever, and, and it, but it also won't look like escape. Hmm. I love that so much. It's so interesting because that vision that you put out, it, it's as if it prevents us from the error of, well, my actions won't make a difference, therefore it shouldn't bother. Because it says, no, every little act is 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 part of this thing that will last, you know? And so it, it redeems even those micro actions that sometimes we think like, oh, you just feel despair because you're overwhelmed. We can't make a difference. But also protects us from that, um, I guess, that misplaced thing that I've got this all figured out and I know it all. That's really compelling and really appreciate you taking time to unpack that. I think that I think that I'm seeing that more than ever, that we're seeing kind of the payoff, at least with millennials and Gen Z, we're seeing the payoff of not that fuller story. Um, And in our um, limping through trying to interact with some of these other worldviews and not having a toolkit to interact from a Christian perspective. Hey friends, just want to take a quick break from the conversation just to highlight some work that the team at Alpha Canada is doing to serve you as you think about how to reach your neighbors and community this fall. Nikki Gumbel, who pioneered Alpha, recently said that we live in the greatest evangelistic opportunity of our lifetime. And I think he's right. This crisis has brought about a certain degree of openness to conversations about spirituality, faith, and God, a longing for community. And we're seeing churches all over Canada grab hold of this moment to reach those who are far from God or disconnected from church. So if you and your church is still considering what outreach to your community and neighbors could look like this fall or winter, I want you to consider running Alpha online. You can find out more by heading to alphacanada.org slash share 2020. That's alphacanada.org slash share 2020. Okay, let's jump back into the conversation with Glenn. Uh, I want to jump back if you're up for it to that point in your story that you mentioned, I think you said 2006. And how old were you at the time? I was 28. I'd been at the church. I was on staff. I'd been at the church six years. What was your role at the time? I was one of the worship leaders. I was helping out with the college ministry. I was the main worship leader for the college ministry. I'd preach a handful of times a year at the college ministry or once a year at the main service. And I would lead on Sundays as well. Um, And I was leading. We had a school of worship in those years, and I was leading that. Yeah. And you'd been in this church for some time, and then um, this scandal happens with the lead pastor. What was that experience like for you as a young leader in the church? Like, what was, and as reflecting back, because in the moment you probably can't parse it, but reflecting back, what began to happen internally for you? Uh, it was very dis- disorienting. Um, you, you, you start to replay back, like, how, how, you know, how did I not know? Um, and, then, and then there's a temptation to throw everything away, like maybe. Any methodology associated with this leader is now tainted. Um, But I would say the first thing that happened was a kind of personal awakening. Um, 
where I, 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 re- I was reading uh, in the months that followed that Henry Nouwen's book, In the Name of Jesus. Oh, it's one of my favorite books. I try to read it every year. Oh, that's a great practice. That's a great practice, Jason. I should do that. It just really assaults probably a, a version of leadership that I'm tempted towards within my expression of Christian leadership. Exactly. And assault is the right word. It, 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 uh, there was a line that just hit me off the page. It, it said, many of today's empire builders are men and women who are not able to give and receive love. And, and it, it, I began to, it began to shift from having a spotlight on someone else's life to the searchlight on my own soul. And, uh, and then the other line that Nouwen says is that, you know, sometimes burnout is the psychological term for spiritual death, you know, that he had not been growing in his own love for Jesus. And I felt, man, I felt that in a, in a very real way. I felt that I, here I was part of the desperation band. We were traveling. We thought we were on the up and up and, um, and, and this happened and it was like the Lord's way of saying, I really don't care about the in the quote unquote influence or the you know any of that stuff i i, I just want to know similar to jesus asking peter on the shores of the sea of galilee do you love me and and that's to me where what it comes back to is when you have these crises moments um you know it's tempting to walk away peter did you know um but but to hear the voice of jesus saying again uh not do you love the cause not do you love the church not do you love the sheep, you know, but do, do you love me? And I realized in my own life, Jesus, I, my love for you has actually gone cold. So I, re- I returned to that, um, that memory, that moment, that text over and over again as a, as a sobering kind of, but, but also sort of an inspiring thing that, that, that for all of you as pastors and Christian leaders, God didn't call you uh, because he needed some work done, you know, he called you to be with him. He called you. Remember in Mark's gospel, it says Jesus called the disciples so that they might be with him. Before he sent them out, he called them near. And man, we've got to recover that. Um, and then walk us through uh, the years that followed, because I'm just, how do you begin to deal with the trauma within a congregation, quite a big congregation? And obviously the church seems vibrant today. Like here we are, you talked about seven congregations, four locations, dynamic training and, and leadership development. And um, I'm sure there was people that didn't believe that it would recover from that kind of scandal. <laughs> we didn't believe it. <laughs> okay. You know what question I wanted to ask before? Why did you stay? Yeah. The, sh- the short answer is the Lord would never let me go. I, we thought about it, my, my wife and I. So let me, let me just go back a little bit. So that was 2006. 2007, new senior pastor came in, Brady Boyd, a man I've grown to love and respect, and we've worked so closely together, a dear, dear um, friend, brother, you know. And, and, but but when, he, when he was chosen, uh, it was not the person I had thought, you know. I, I, we wanted some other candidate, an internal candidate. And and uh, a guy that had been my boss, and so I, I wrestled through some disappointment, but I felt like the Lord said, "Nope, stay." So that was round one of should I stay or should I go? And then um, a couple years later, or maybe it was a year later, um, my wife and I—I I, I was given my first ever sabbatical. It was short, it was six weeks, but it was first ever. 
And we started reading these Eugene Peterson books, you know, The Contemplative Pastor, The uh, Under the Unpredictable Plant. And it, man, it just, it, cre- it, it created such a vision in us of this is what pastoral ministry is about. It's about the personal and the local. And I sort of came erroneously to the conclusion that I can't be this kind of pastor in this context. Mm. And I actually wrote to Peterson, to Eugene, and he was kind enough to allow me to come and visit him, spend a couple of days in his home with him and Jan. In fact, there's a picture right there above the bookshelves of me and Eugene. Very cool. And, and, um, and, and in the, the course of those days, he said, he said, Glenn, there is no ideal context in which to be a pastor. And that's maybe something that all of us as church leaders need to hear over and over. There's no ideal context in which to be a pastor. He, he was a Presbyterian that really had more Pentecostal instincts because of his mother, uh, how he was raised. Um, but but you you are where you are, and and, as, and he said, as long as you think you can faithfully live out this vocation here, then stay. Well, I actually I went to visit him with a colleague of mine at the time, and he. What God spoke to him out of that trip was totally different than what God said to me, because God told him, it's time to go. And, and, he, and he went and planted a great church, you know, two, two and a half hours north of here. I was just with him last week, thriving, doing a great job. And I stayed. And, and, and the Lord is, is, is giving us the grace to flourish here. So it's not as if the right answer is for everyone. It is very individually discerned. But we felt that we were given the right relationships and the right context that we could flourish. So 2009, we started a Sunday evening service. Brady asked us to, to consider that. We did that. We started testing out some of these things. So liturgy became a, a piece of this. Uh, this was where we realized we needed an anchor in our worship practices that didn't just point to another heroic individual. And this is the temptation in the U.S. American church, you know, where, where uh, you sub out one hero for a different hero. And and we said, something else has to be different. And we began doing weekly communion. And, and that Sunday night service became like our laboratory. Um, and, and we did weekly communion. Eventually, the, the big Sunday morning services started doing weekly communion. We've been doing that now for, for, I don't know, about 10 years. And and we've realized it makes you preach differently. Jesus has to be the hero of every sermon by the end of it, you know. Uh, you're, you're, there comes a moment where the worship team could, could make a mess of the set, the, ser- the preacher could make a mess of the sermon, but at the Lord's table, you kind of get out of the way and say, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So those were some of the things that happened in the years that followed the, the, that event. Oh, it's so incredible. I think this is one of the unique things. Um, I haven't seen it in person at New Life. I haven't been able to visit and be there. But observing your journey and from afar, one of the things that stands out to me is as if you guys have sort of embraced two worlds that you don't always see up close. It's definitely other churches are doing it, but it's it's not as common to see some some liturgical forms, uh, whether it's call and response and there's other things. And um, obviously the table is a weekly expression. And then also, but in the context of a big church with, you know, uh, really good sound and dynamic worship and, and a charismatic sort of evangelical worship expression. And uh, I just love to just hear your reflections on that because for two reasons. One is I do think there's something about those two things working together that's uniquely perhaps important always, but for this time, that idea of of experience in different forms. But then also I think there's a bigger theme here of being able to draw from different streams that I think really marks 
a new wave of church expression. And so if you could just kind of give us a window in and kind of unpack a little bit about what that looks like for you guys practically and, and how you've worked out things that seem seemingly at tension with one another, but then found a unifying pathway for it. Well, you're, you're absolutely right that I think there is something that the Lord is doing because it, it, it's not unique to us. There's, we keep discovering other places where they're doing similar things. And I, I think that the, the sacramental or liturgical and the charismatic are like, to use that old expression from the renewal movement days, they're like banks of the same river. You know, they, they, they help us, the move of the spirit, um, but one has a bit of an ancient um, structure and the other has this sort of you know inv- expectation of encounter. And I think both are really important. And then the, the second thing I'll say is, I think that what the blend or tension is, is going to be different in every context. Um, so some people might be in a context where there is an allergic reaction to anything ancient or liturgical because of the associations that it has. Uh, I've talked to people who, who come, you know, in the Northeast United States, where it's very Catholic, um, um, uh, ba- negative experiences, let's say, with Catholic Church. They've said, if we try to do that, or if we say the word Eucharist, uh, people are like, oh my gosh, you know, so you do have to discern that contextually and find, you know, roll the dial on what the right uh, blend is. And even for us at our different congregations, five, our five English language congregations, we all do weekly communion, but we don't all do uh, all the other stuff. I would say two or three emphasize the church calendar. Uh, one or two use some liturgical words, ancient words for setting up the communion moment. Um, but, but so you have to, you know, find the right blend. And, and there's going to be opposition when we even announced that we were going to do weekly communion. People were like, well, don't you think it'll lose its specialness, you know, if we do that every week? <laughs> Well, there's lots of things we do every week. We somehow manage to keep it fresh, you know. So, <laughs> so even even helping people not have a negative view of of uh, the habitual or the ritual, and to say that actually habits reinforce our desires, and and rituals and rhythms can be a way of bolstering our our heart. It's because we desire to encounter the Lord. Um, we we do these things, and and then another thing I would say is is let the sensibilities of each stream, the charismatic and the contemplative, bleed on each other. So you, you know I've been in some liturgical churches where they do the communion stuff and the liturgy, but it's like there's no music and it's just it was just going to get through this, and that I understand that that's fine. But the, the charismatic in me is like let's put a keyboard pad under that, like let's have the worship team playing under that, let, because. Why wouldn't we come to the table with the expectation that this is a moment of encounter as well? Not just when we were singing 10 minutes ago, not just during the altar call or whatever, but also here. So let that sensibility kind of bleed on, on, on those practices. And then in a similar way, let the, what the contemplative liturgical tradition teaches the charismatic is trust that God is at work even when you can't feel it uh, or see it. You know, sometimes as charismatics, we're, so uh, judging or gauging things based on the response or the emotions and all of that is real. Uh, it's just not reliable. It's real, but it's not reliable. So sometimes that's there. Sometimes that's not there. And the contemplative tradition says, do it anyway. Show up anyway. Pray the Psalms anyway, you know, um, and and that's been good. So so 10 years along, I we we've seen the richness of that. Hmm. One of the things I appreciate 
listening to you and reading your work is I feel like you're grabbing some of the best from some different streams. And this is a bad caricature, but I'm going to attempt to sort of put some categories out there. You know, there's definitely a stream within the church that says that, you know, spirituality or Christian maturity is, is through information, increased doctrinal alignment. And so, you know, obviously there's a real positive view of that, like, Hey, getting, getting that truth, that catechism of like, here are the doctrines so there's just like discipleship through information transfer. And then like there's critiques of that. And then you, you've got like James Smith writes, you are what you love or, and there's other works around that. And he's really talking about formation and like yes. that the things that we do actually form us. So then there's this view of discipleship through formation. And then the charismatic world talks a lot about breakthrough and discipleship through encounter. And oftentimes those things are all pinned up and against each other. And there might be four other pegs you could put around the tent. But I feel like one of the things I find compelling about what you're describing is, is it's not a rejection or a reaction off one, but really actually trying to, to show a picture that brings some of the best of those together. Any yes. thoughts or reflections in what I'm attempting to describe no, here? No, no, you're, you're exactly right, Jason. And I, I have tried to say it in a slightly different way. I think we have different, uh, we, we unknowingly we have different paradigms of what the worship service is for, and we import those, we bring that in. So, mm-hmm. so one paradigm is that the worship service is for formation. So let's make all the song lyrics as theologically dense as possible. Let's make our practices as rich and thoughtful as possible, you know, because we are here to be formed. And that's true and can be defended from scripture. Um, and, and then the other paradigm says, no, no, we are here to reach the lost. And we can think of churches that, that have said this, you know, this is the, uh, a great chance to win those who are seekers and, and, and bring them in. And so we need to kind of reduce everything to sort of the lowest common denominator. We need to not have churchy language. Hey, that, that's helpful too. That's an act of hospitality. Uh, again, you, you know, I, I've learned a lot of that from you and from the Alpha team. Uh, there's a, there's a, there's a kind of way where you set the table and make the questions and conversations easy. That's the mission paradigm. And then the third paradigm is encounter. As you rightly said, the charismatic notion of we're here to meet with God. And when we meet with God, all kinds of things happen. You know, we're, we're, we get breakthroughs, we get healings, we get, you know. And I want to say that in the book of Acts, all three things are happening. In the New Testament church, all three things are going on, mission, formation, and encounter. And we need not pit them against one another. Instead, we ought to hold them in the right sort of generative tension. And it, it's a little bit like messing around with an image on a photo editing software where you drag one side of it and you didn't, but you didn't lock the ratio, you know, so now the person looks wider or taller. So, so I think we distort the image when we, when we exclusive, when we emphasize one to the exclusion of the others. Um, formation, when it's overemphasized, makes us, a bit too serious and a bit too analytical and a bit too obsessive about every little detail of the thing, you know, and, and, and mission can make us a, a little too uh, willing to, to, to thin out uh, the message and, and encounter can make us a little bit too consumeristic about experience and did it feel right? So, but, but held together, we can be gospel shaped, Christ centered, spirit led churches. Ah, oh, it's beautiful. I love that. Um, I want to, I just kind of stuck on the conversation you had with Eugene and the question you're asking, like, 
I remember reading his book, The Pastor, and it just, it was really hard for me to reconcile with essentially the managerial functions I was performing in my church at the time, you know, we're in multi, multiple departments. Um, and, you know, there's some business practices that are at work in the church and, and I, I really struggled to reconcile those things. Um, and I still feel like I do at times, you know. Um, and I just would love to hear about how you've been reconciling because you're still operating within a church that has really clear systems and structures, um, whether it's for pastoral care or communications or whatever it is. And how, how have you reconciled your role as like leader within the organization, but then also pastor trying to live into that kind of shepherd vocation? It's very hard, Jason, and and we're not alone in this struggle. I read uh, some a Barna study recently of it's what pastors tend to hate the most is the managerial side of our work. And there's ways around that. Some people, you know, you find the right team. Some people do a pure number two that deals with the administration. Uh, other people, you know, for Eugene, he had his elders. He was in a Presbyterian uh, kind of um structure. And, and so he had his elders kind of take care of all the business affairs. In my context, I don't get away from it. I mean, I, I have had difficult meetings about staff issues and about, yeah. you know, reorganizing th- stuff. And they're, they're painful decisions because there's always people that you care for on the other end of those decisions. And and you don't do them perfectly, but it doesn't feel like you're operating as a pastor in those modes. You, you are operating as a as a leader, uh, or manager or, or, you know, and, and that, that's hard. I don't know the way around that. I, I, I think, um, I think as a church grows, you're, you're going to have that. My hope, my prayer and all of this is Lord, help us to do this in the, in the lamb's way and not the dragon's way. You know, um, there was a great book came out a couple years ago, some friends, Jamin Gogan and Kyle Strobel, the way of the dragon or the way of the lamb. And, obviously a contrast in the revelation stuff. And, and so, so even when we get it wrong, can we be humble? Can we apologize? Can we try to rectify or are we defensive and we don't back down from any decision we've made? Um, Do we make it easy for people to contribute and collaborate or are we dominating and controlling? So I don't think organizational leadership is, antithetical to the pastoral calling, arguably, if you want. I mean, some people say maybe that's more the apostolic sort of thing, creating order and structure. I think no matter what mode we're in, it has to look like Jesus. It has to be in a sort of Jesus way. And and the conversation with Eugene, I mean, he worked at a large church in his younger years, and he didn't he didn't think that was bad. He he ran into struggles within his own denomination with having to write out reports and weekly reports. So I've come to discover that every context has its own, you know, sort of thorns that come with the rose, you know. Hmm. That's really helpful to hear reflect on that. Um, super practical, just while I have you. I, I heard you describe a little bit about um, just how you approached reentry. Now, people listening across Canada and around the world, every province, country, even in some places, counties have different sort of guidelines. So there's def- definitely no one size fits all. You know, I know here in Canada, our restrictions in Vancouver are so different than Halifax, you know, on that side of the country. But I, I thought that your guys' process of reopening some services was had some unique sort of reproducible qualities of how you, you engaged uh, hearing back from people. And I just love to 
hear you describe yeah. that process you guys followed to hear and listen to the community and how you approached it thoughtfully. Well, one one of the things, you, you know, uh, our county's medical director, our county public health medical director, which in the structure here in the States, that's the person who kind of assesses what each county should do, uh, is a member of our downtown congregation. So we we couldn't get away with, with anything, even if we wanted to. But we of course, we didn't want to. We wanted to be respectful and mindful. So I was on a couple of small work committees on putting together a variance request, a variance request in our in our context, basically appealing to our county leaders to say, can churches open under these uh, guidelines? Look, this is what we will do to show that we're responsible, blah, 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 blah. And, 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 and I got to present that to the county um, commissioners and, and it was approved unanimously. And they did not add uh, there were things they didn't add. They didn't add a maximum cap number. They just worked with percentages and distancing and cleaning and that kind of thing. The trick came in with that it went up to the state level, and then the state said, actually, we're going to add these additional layers and you know, all that kind of thing. So we also were in communication with our congregation. During the, the early part of the quarantine, we, we called every household uh, in our church, in a database, and that was just a check-in call. And then we followed up with a survey uh, just saying, would you come back? Or what are you nervous about? That kind of thing. And, you know, 70, 70% of people said, yeah, we'll come back. Well, they didn't. Uh, when we reopened, I, you know, it was at first it was like 20% maybe, uh, even though there were a lot of service options. And, and each service was operating at about 25% of capacity, but there were a lot of options. So it took time. We're just now, a couple months after or since reopening, we're just now getting some sense of it. Hey, more and more people are coming back at the various uh, services, but it's it's man, it's it's a difficult thing because um, there are definitely churches in our county who said we're going to decide. We've decided to stay closed. For us downtown, we we rent from a school. That school's not accessible to us. We're doing our services up north at a, at a evening time, which is weird for people. Uh, it's it's tough. <laughs> mm. How have you processed the questions around? Because I know you think so thoughtfully about formation, about encounter, about what we do when we gather. And I'm curious what thoughts are going through your mind about what we do when we gather online. Yeah, yeah. There's there's been a lot of that, and how do we how do we make this personal and and communal? Um, it was very hard when we were when we were just streaming because it felt like they were just broadcasting content. This doesn't feel right. So early on, actually, one of our other congregation pastors developed the idea of using Zoom as like a digital lobby. So they would get their congregation to log on after the live stream and say, let's talk about that and then let's pray for one another. So we started doing that and that was a huge hit because – then it wasn't just hope. Thanks for tuning in. It was okay. What what, what what did the Lord speak to you about that? How can we pray for you? And we'd use the breakout rooms and that kind of thing. But but we were still missing a, a more a personal level of fellowship. You know, I mean, we we downtown were so used to kind of these meal groups and being in one another's homes, and we couldn't do that. So we started using Facebook, I created a closed Facebook group for our congregation. We started to do daily morning prayer on our Facebook group where we pray through the Psalms together. Um, that has been, people said they, that helped them feel connected more than anything uh, in the past. But it's weird, man. I mean, I, I don't, our ecclesiology does not say that church is a disembodied thing, you know. 
And so even when the gathering was less than perfect, we were like, we'll take it because we do believe some form of gathering together needs to happen. And there's some great ideas from churches all around, you know, they're doing parks and now that things have opened up a little bit, they're doing, you know, you know, um, some small groups in their homes and that kind of thing. So it's good. I think it's exposed our, our, our weakness for us as a larger church. We're not as robust in our small groups as we could be in terms of the main campus and others of our, even our downtown, you know, so, so that, that's an interesting struggle too, because things that you think are values, you see that to others, like, oh, I guess it's not your value yet, you know? <laughs> well, bro, I've just so enjoyed having this time to chat with you. And there's lots of things I'd love to ask more of, but I want to respect your time and the time of our listeners. But maybe I'll just end with one question. And, um, and we've kind of hinted at it, but I want to just revisit. We talked a little bit about the idea of Christian hope how do we lead our congregation through it, invite them into the story? Uh, but I'm just thinking about the individuals listening right now and their own feeling of hope right now. And I just know that uh, this season for a lot of pastors has been discouraging. Um, you look at the numbers, uh, you look at engagement, and for most it feels like it's on a negative trend. And there's just uncertainty of what to do. And I think there's just an awareness of some measure of despair, of discouragement. And I just wonder if you could just speak a word of like, what is our hope right now as Christian leaders in this time? Uh, You know, to pastors, I just want to say thank you for your faithfulness. Uh, This is a really, really difficult time. And it seems like anything we decide will get hit on both sides or multiple sides. And so there's weariness, there's, there's fear, there's isolation and I, you know, I know I'm returning to the book of Revelation a lot. It's the series we're preaching out of as a church. And, but Revelation 1, John, Pastor John, he's writing this vision down for the sake of the churches that he shepherds. And, and right in chapter 1, he describes his own sort of uh, place of he falls before the Lord as if uh, one who's dead. And Jesus puts his hand on his shoulder and says, uh, don't be afraid. I am the living one. I was dead and am now alive. And and he holds the stars. He holds the seven churches in his hands. And so just to know that Jesus holds your church, uh, Jesus has his hand on you. Um, uh, you have nothing to fear. Jesus stands in the middle of the cosmos and in the middle of the chaos uh, of the situation of our lives. And and to know that, and and maybe to know, to rest, that in this season there is nothing else we need to do um, that, that, amount, that, that, um, that matters more than beholding Jesus, the risen one, Jesus, the living one, the crucified and risen. And so my prayer for myself, for pastors, is that we would, even in the midst of this, be granted that kind of eyesight that John was granted, to behold Jesus, the crucified and risen one. Beautiful. Thanks for sharing that. 
Well, hey, I want to give a huge thank you to Glenn for sharing his time and wisdom with us today. It was so meaningful to chat with him, and I'm so grateful. If you want to connect more with Glenn or his work, even some of the books that we mentioned, you can find everything described in the show notes at cclnca slash blog. And again, I can't recommend highly enough his new book, Worship and the World to Come. You'll find a link to it in the show notes. And in addition to that, we've got highlights from this interview available there, as well as our Instagram and YouTube channels. As usual, if you've enjoyed this episode or any of them beforehand, it would go a long way to us and the team. If you would share it with a friend, you know, someone you think would benefit from these conversations. And if you haven't already, please give this podcast a review on whatever app you're on, like, subscribe, whatever it is you can do. It would mean a lot to us. And any feedback or ideas are welcome. You can reach us and the team at contact at cclm.ca. Well, thanks for being with us today and we'll see you soon. Thank you.